So we're in this series, The Unseen Realm, Discovering What the Bible Really Teaches About the Supernatural World. Um, if what we're talking about last week and this week, this is kind of a part two, uh, because I didn't get nearly as far as I thought it would last week. I intended it to be one week, but it'll be two. Um, if you're interested in me, I, I want to dig more into this particular one. Genesis 6 is what we're looking at. The, the particular resource that I would point you to is um, on that page there, Reversing Hermon, Enoch, the Watchers, and the Forgotten Mission of Jesus Christ. So that, that would be a good one if you're interested in this particular <clears throat> topic. Thanks for the questions that I've gotten from a number of you guys that, that, that I'll try to, either along the way, maybe at the end, I don't know, try to address some of those really, really good questions. Um, we're, we're leveraging this content from uh, Michael Heiser's number of his different books, uh, Mostly Unseen Realm. <clears throat> um, just a real br brief recap, just because it's, it's helpful, I think, for us to kind of, as we get in the mindset of things, week one, we were introduced to the idea that God has a divine counsel, the idea that just as we are his imagers here, that he has a uh, non-human family, a divine family, who are his imagers in the unseen realm. And we saw that uh, he, he longs to partner with his imagers. Uh, he, he invites them in to say, how are we going to do this? What are we going to do? And ultimately, we're going to see it's really helpful for us to study and know that because that actually tells us something about our eternal destiny. Do you ever wonder about the question, what is eternity going to be like? Is it sitting around on clouds, playing harps, right? That's sort of the folk theology picture in our culture. Is it, is it in a, I've heard you know, pastors say, well, it's going to be a giant worship service. I think, man, I can only worship so long. Yeah, I mean, because I'm thinking sitting out here and singing and that sort of thing is, you know, forever. What will eternity be like for us? And so this is kind of toward the end of the series, we're going to spend one week on that and try to lift from all the different elements that we've seen along the way and try to create a picture to say this is something as to what it'll be like. We don't know exactly. Paul says we look as through a, a glass dimly, right? No eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has in store for those who love him or are called by his name. So it's not that we can fully detail it out, but we can get maybe a better picture than the baby on a cloud, <laughs> a little bit more of a biblical picture than that. Week two, we, we asked this question, and this is how we're framing probably the, these last week, this week, and then the next as well, is if we were to answer the question and we were biblically informed, why is the world so messed up? Why is it so broken and just, you know, I mean, it's, a lot of parts of it are crummy. Why is it so bad that we would, we would give a simplistic answer? We would give one-third of what the Bible says. We would say, well, that's Genesis 3. That's our first parents' fall and rebellion with this divine being, this serpent, in the garden. That's, that's it. And we pointed out and said, that's, that's not what an ancient Israelite would say. That's not what a, a Jew living in the first century, the time that the New Testament happened. And we know that because we have writings of Jews talking about it. They're writing commentaries. They're writing books. They wrote books. <laughs> and they're talking about it. And they don't just say Genesis 3. They say Genesis 3. But then they say it's also Genesis 6, the uh, rebellion of this group of the sons of God. And they go across some boundary with women and the Nephilim and human corruption is like amplified. And then they thirdly would say also Genesis 
11, where there's the Tower of Babel, this ziggurat temple where the people try to control God and call Him down and determine the nature of the relationship, and He finally divorces the nations, and He allots them to a different set of spiritual beings called the sons of God, and He allots them to the gods, and He allots the sons of God to them. And of course, we know that doesn't go well, because at some point in the future, that group of sons of God rebel as well. They become corrupt, and they corrupt the nations. And so that's the rest of the Bible, is it's God versus the gods. It's Israel versus the nations. It sets the stage for the entire epic story. So if we miss those pieces, we just can't quite make sense of it all. We still get the gospel. The gospel's not different than you've always known. But we, we, we miss layers. We miss nuances. We're not able to connect dots that biblical authors were able to connect or pick up on little things that they were inferring to by just mentioning something because we lack context. We just don't have that context. So that's been the goal in this. And um, we, I started backwards, um, which is to say I started on the third one. I started Genesis 11, the, div- the divorcing of the nations. Then last week we, we got to the second one, uh, which is this transgression of these divine beings and something. And we spent two weeks in that, and the next week we're going to get to the original rebel in the garden and see what exactly was going on there. So let's do this. Let's jump into Genesis chapter 6. And if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn them on or open them up, but I'll have the passage up on the screen here. Genesis chapter 6. We're going to read verses 1 through 5. And what we're going to discover is there's a two-pronged problem that happens. Okay? When man began to multiply in the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the, and this is the sons of God. Now, this is a different group than the sons of God we read about in Genesis 11, okay? Totally different group. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. They took as their wives any they chose. Uh, then Yahweh said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards. When the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. These, the ones born to them, were the mighty men of, who were of old, the men of renown. That's the first prong of the problem. The second prong of the problem is verse 5. And we've always struggled to, and we'll, we'll get to this tonight, how do these two prongs relate? They seem totally disconnected. Uh, Yahweh saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So again, divine rebellion, it has two prongs, and we struggle to see how they're connected. We're going to try to see how the ancient Israelites would have understood how one through four could at all tie into verse five and what's going on here. Because whatever happened was so bad that God sent a flood to destroy what was there. So the first problem, as we mentioned, the, the Nephilim. The, the Nephilim 
um, and they go by different names in your bulletin. I give you some of those different names, uh, the Anakim, the Rephaim, the Amim, the Zamzumim. There's the names, as we said last week, are just what other people groups called them. So they get names based on what other people refer to them as. So we have a number of them. And, and this isn't the ex, uh, exhaustive list. <laughs> there, there are more <clears throat> names for them. Um, but these are, these are the giant clans that we encounter, that Israel encounters when they go into Canaan, that David encounters in Goliath. These are divine human, uh, quasi-divine human beings. And what we see is in this passage, verses 1 through 4, this group of the sons of God, they're, they're attempting to raise up their own imagers. And again, we're going to get to, you know, we, God's done that on page 1 and 2, right? He, he created his own imagers, and we see them sort of creating a rival beings for them. The giant clans are going to become a lethal threat when God calls Abraham and calls Israel and creates his own people. But this passage, it explains a lot of things in the Old Testament. If, if you're not, um, we're not aware of it, we're not going to get why it was that when Israel went to conquer Canaan, they were afraid and lacked faith and had to wander for 40 years. That's a big part of the story. You know why that was? Because they saw the Anakim in the land. And they said, we were like grasshoppers to them. So it gives meaning to that. It explains the conquest of Canaan. Why it is that they were to target this particular people group and wipe them out, while others they were told to just drive out. It also explains, we said, the origin of the demons that we see in the New Testament. Eventually, these giant beings, they get wiped out uh, in, in the time, uh, around the time of David. But in the Old Testament, we see in the prophets, we see this idea that the Rephaim are in Sheol, are in the grave, and they're riled up, that sort of language. And Jewish writings during the intertestamental period, which is to say after the Old Testament time, before the New Testament time, as they're writing about these spirits of the dead disembodied Rephaim, um, they're, they're talking about them like, as we know, the demons in the New Testament. They say things like, well, they seek re-embodiment because they once were embodied, and when they do possess, they attack the people, they cause diseases, they cause blindness, they cause destruction. This is how they thought about these beings. Are, are, and if you've read the New Testament Gospels, you're going, oh, that sounds really familiar. They, they, they called them illegitimate because they're not pure humans. They called them bastard spirits. Uh, Jesus refers to them, we said last week, as unclean, which what's unclean is a forbidden mixture of something. And while the fallen sons of God in Genesis 6 here, and we'll, we'll read about this in a second from Second uh, Peter and from Jude, we're told that the sons of God who went into the houses of men, they were sent to the abyss, and you might think of hell or whatever, but they were chained there. This group has no access to get out. That's not said of others who are in Sheol, for instance. Um, and so they wrote about these demons as they have the ability to roam the land of the living, is some of the language that's used there. Their judgment... It's, it's in the future. 
They're not imprisoned yet. That's coming in the future, which kind of makes sense of this. Do you remember this passage? Um, Jesus goes to the Gadarenes. He goes over to a a non-Jewish area, and he comes across two demon-possessed men. They met him there, and it says, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they, these, these are the spirits who are possessing these two, say, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? You might think, well, how do they know the time? Because <laughs> they're not chained. They're, that, that's in the future. That's, that's what biblical writers would speak as the great day of the Lord. When the day of the Lord comes, that's when judgment happens. That's when the house gets cleaned, both in this realm and that realm. God is going to bring judgment through the person of Jesus. So that that was the first problem. And we see the problem with the Nephilim that's fixed, though there's the disembodied spirit thing. That's kind of a lingering issue. But but these beings are are low-level spiritual enemies, They're not the ones that Paul speaks of in the New Testament when he says there are thrones and principalities and powers and rulers. Remember that? We talked about that, I think, week two. Those are high-level beings. Those those are the beings that rebelled in Genesis 11 who were put over the nations. These, the demons in the New Testament, they're low on the totem pole, so to speak, if if you can think of kind of like a, a hierarchy in that sense. There's, there's a second, I said that this is a two-pronged problem that happens in Genesis chapter 6. Um, and the second prong, as we read earlier, verse 5, Yahweh saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I mean, the author is doing, you know, Everything to, to emphasize this, to underscore, to put an exclamation point at how excessive this was. Something has changed, is his point. It's not like it was prior to chapter 6. What was that? And I think the most helpful thing to look at, and we looked at these passages, but we... Um, actually, let me, let me say something before I do that, because I want to say something about language. Um, <clears throat> Sons of God, we've looked at that language uh, every single time. B'nai Elohim, which is sons of God, or B'nai Ha Elohim, is used in the Old Testament. It always refers to these divine beings. It's used many, many times. In the intertestamental period, Jewish writers um, started also using the phrase of the watchers. And when they talk about the watchers, they're referring to God's divine counsel. And they're referring to a job that they have on earth. And it's not just intertestamental Jews. Um, Daniel uses the phrase, the watchers, to refer to these as well. And here are a couple examples of that. Uh, Daniel chapter 4, he says, I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in my bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one. And, And the phrase holy ones always refers to these members of God's divine counsels. I saw a watcher, he said. Verse 17, he says, um, this, this is a, a sentence being delivered to the king because he has been evil. It says, the sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision of the word of the holy ones. 
Now, just a couple of verses later, it's also said, this is, this is a decree by Yahweh. So what you realize is, oh, he, Yahweh was in, inviting them into the process. <laughs> he said, well, what should we do, guys? What do you want to do? Okay, so that's, that's kind of idea, the, the idea that you're supposed to get. Similarly, Daniel chapter 4, verse 23. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven, and then he gives, he gives the message. So one reason why people, sometimes in scholarship, like the phrase the watcher or the watchers is it helps us distinguish this group of the sons of God in 6 from the group of the sons of God in uh, Genesis 11. Does that make sense? So I'll oftentimes refer to them as the watchers because then I'm, oh, I'm thinking of 6, that group, not in chapter 11, that group, because they're both sons of God. Does that make sense? So I'll probably use those terms interchangeably, the watchers or the sons of God. I'm thinking about this group of divine council beings in Genesis chapter 6. So let's do this. Let's look at two New Testament passages, uh, Jude and then Peter, where they both reflect back on and they say some things about Genesis 6 that help us get what was going, what's the two-pronged thing? Because both Peter and Jude underscore it. They allude to it. Okay. Um, Jude first, verse 3. He writes, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. This means something's... If you have to contend for something, that means it's in question. Uh, he says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. And he defines them. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord. Um, And then he goes on to say, uh, the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he, God, has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until that day of judgment. Okay, so we know what he's talking about. The, the, The supernatural beings, the angels, which left their proper abode, there's only one candidate for that, and that's Genesis chapter 6. That, that's the only thing that he can be talking about. Oftentimes people say, well, well didn't, didn't Satan and a third of the angels uh, fall? No, that's nowhere in the Bible. That, that's that's uh, folk theology. <laughs> uh, closest thing you can come to that is in Revelation chapter 12, where at the birth of Christ, we're told, in the, in the supernatural realm, the, the serpent or the, the dragon, it says, this is revelatory language, the, the dragon with his tail swipes a third of the angels to the ground. It's a, it's a spiritual defeat. That's the only place in the entire Bible where, it doesn't even say angels, it says stars, where stars and a third are together. But that's, that's I, think, I think we get that in Milton's Paradise Lost or Dante or something like that, but that's not, that's not scriptural. So the only candidate that we have for multiple supernatural beings falling rebelling is Genesis 6. So we know Jude has this in mind. And he says, 
what they're guilty of is something to do with sensuality and then denying truth. Okay? Peter's even clearer when he identifies the two. Um, he says, uh, start up here. Both Peter and Jude are talking about false teachers. He says, false uh, prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of the way uh, and because of them, the way of the truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. And then again, when he brings up the example, just like Jude, of sensuality and false teaching, where does his mind immediately hyperlink to? It immediately goes to Genesis 6. Because it's a perfect example. Because it's sensuality and some sort of teaching that corrupts. That's why he says, for God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell. And we'll come back to that in a second here. Committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. And then he talks about Noah, the flood. So he has Genesis 6 in mind. He clearly has it in mind. So both of Jude and Peter tell us what's going on in Genesis 6, what's so bad that a flood had to come, is something sensual. There's some sort of a sensual thing that happened. There was a sexual transgression, and there was, and there was teaching that corrupted, okay? Do you see that? <clears throat> so that would help us to know, okay, wh- what did they understand that we don't? Because I, I get the sensuality thing, I kind of see, but what about this, this teaching that corrupted in some way? And that one is actually more major than the Nephilim. Now, the Nephilim problem is kind of more interesting because, ooh, that's weird, that's you know, sounds like something I'd like to see a movie about or something. We're more intrigued by that. The biblical authors give more credence to this thing, the second prong of what happened there. And essentially what happens is the, the watchers, okay, the sons of God, when they come to earth, uh, and we're, we're going to mention the book of First Enoch here in a little bit, that's a um, pre-Christian Jewish Second Temple writing, okay? It's, it's, it's a story about Genesis 6. And in the book of First Enoch, that author has the watchers descend to Mount Hermon. And it's at Mount Hermon, either at the top or at the foot, that they make a pact together. We're going to corrupt humans. We're going we're gonna to destroy them, <laughs> is the idea that Enoch, this Jewish book, has. And it's not that humanity didn't know how to sin. We're really good at it all on our own, right? Sin wasn't in, invented there. We know that from page three of the Bible. Humans were sinning. But it's the idea that whatever happened here, they threw, um, to use a current illustration, gasoline on the fire. They, they proliferated human self-destruction in some way, something that they did. They sped it up. This is, again, why Peter and Jude both bring up the angels who sinned when they say false teachers come in and they do stuff with sensuality and then they corrupt you. They destroy truth and they think immediately of that. Now, when we read Genesis 6, 1 through 5, it doesn't say anything about humanity being taught. 
anything. So we might go, well, where, where, are, where would we be getting that from? How was it that the ancient Near East Jews connected verses 1 through 4 about the Nephilim, and then verse 5, humanity so wicked? Do you see how they feel really disconnected? I mean, it's just like, what does 1 through 4 have to do with 5? And that's because we lack the ancient context that they just assumed. And what's really interesting is this has been a very recent discovery. In 2010, there was a cuneiform scholar uh, who, this is the language of Mesopotamia, and he, he asked the question, he said, you know, we've got, we've got flood stories outside of the Bible, right? You know, you've got the Gilgamesh epic, you've got these Mesopotamian flood stories, lots of them, and they talk about the flood, and you can kind of look at them all and go, yeah, these ancient cultures all had this concept of a flood. But he said, Genesis uh, 1 through 5 and the connection there, I wonder if there's any parallel there. I wonder if there's any connection. And so it was only in 2010, after years of pulling together literally thousands of, of cuneiform tablets, that he, he was able to find a parallel from the Mesopotamian world um, now, again, this, this is not, I'm talking 13 hours away from Israel, okay? It's not, it's not far. And in this story, what we find is a point-by-point lineup to Genesis 1 through 5. It, it, it accounts for every single element, but it preserves more of the context of how they understood it. Um, and so this, this Mesopotamian story, let me, let me kind of tell you the story and see if you can try to identify, oh, here's the correlation, you know, points with this particular story. In this story, there are these um, divine beings, they're called the Apkalu, and the Apkalu come to earth and they teach humans culture. They teach them how to be great how to have a great culture. And um, they're, they're kind of lesser gods, these Apkalu. And the higher-up gods, they, they originally created humans to be slaves, but humans are noisy, they're kind of stinky, they're just, you know. And so the, the higher gods say, we're, we're just going to wipe them out. I'm just sort of, I'm, I'm tired of these humans. And so they, they tell the Apkalu, we're going to destroy it all with flood. Well, the Apkalu go, We've spent a lot of time with these humans. We've taught them a lot of things. I don't want that to all go to waste. And we don't have record of what they did, but somehow they preserved the culture through the flood. And then after the flood, we're told the Apkalu are only two-thirds Apkalu, and now they're of human descent. Oh, that's weird. We don't know what they... Somehow they mixed with the humans in some way, and that's what allowed them to go through. Well, Marduk, the high god of Mesopotamia, he's ticked at the Apkalu. So guess what he does? He sends them to the abyss, and he locks them up in chains that they can never get out. Does that sound familiar at all? (laughs) Now, it's theologized differently, isn't it? The Mesopotamians are putting their theological spin on the same story. And see, Babylon would say, the Apkalu are the reason why we're the best. 
Our culture is so awesome because, now listen to these things, they taught us things like um, weapons of warfare. This is, why, this is why we can go in and just wipe people out because we're so strong because they taught us new technology of warfare. They taught us astrology with reading the stars. They taught us arts of seduction, um, knowledge of herbs and plants to make potions so you can create altered states of consciousness and have religious experiences, okay? And they said, that's awesome. Israel says, that's horrible. <laughs> these, these sons of God, the watchers, they're not good. See, Babylon called to the Apkalu, or this is, this is sort of academic term for how they would view him, is they viewed him as culture heroes. What's a culture hero? Um, Thomas Edison is a culture hero for us. He, he helped us to harness, what? Electricity. And so he's, he's one of our culture heroes. You say, he made us better. Okay? The Apkalu are the culture heroes for Mesopotamia, for Babylon. Because they say, they made us better. They gave us all these things. Well, Israel looks at the same story. They go, yeah, there were the watchers. There were the sons of God. What they brought, all those things you mentioned, astrology, potions, so you can have altered states of consciousness, better technology so you can have more bloodshed. <laughs> That's not good. That's horrible. All that is doing is speeding up human self-destruction. They taught us, not just the sensual thing, they taught us something bad, knowledge that we should not have, that we should not possess. Um, let me see if I can give you kind of an illustration or example of this. Um, <clears throat> you guys, uh, even here, you probably won't admit it, been to Las Vegas before? <clears throat> you, don't, you don't have to admit. Um, <clears throat> Las Vegas is about the same distance from here as Mesopotamia is from Israel. It's about 80 miles further. Okay? It's about a 13-mile drive from here. It's, or it's about a 12-hour dri drive. It's about a 13-hour drive from Israel to Mesopotamia. That's their neighbor. Okay? Suppose you lived in a culture where the dominant narrative about Las Vegas was, man, these brilliant entrepreneurs came in and gave this awesome gift to Nevada. They brought, they brought wealth, and, and they brought beauty, and they brought all these wonderful things, and it, and it, it brought about human flourishing. <laughs> and then you go, uh, Bugsy Siegel, the guy who opened up the Flamingo in 1946, was a mobster, okay? All of his crony buddies... It was trafficked money, okay? It was, it, was, it was horrible, and it destroyed lives. People lost their entire savings. They lost their homes. They lost everything. If, if the dominant narrative in our culture was that what happened in Las Vegas back in the 40s was this epicenter of brilliance, and, and you said, yeah, it, it happened. Not like that, though. It was horrible. Bugsy Malone was a, was a loser, and he brought a lot of uh, self-destruction to people's lives. That's what's going on here. You get it? The Mesopotamian story of the Apkalu, the culture heroes who brought all this great information, the, the Israelites looked at it and said, ah, oh, it was a disaster. They brought things, technology, yeah, they brought stuff all right, 
It, it, it threw gasoline on the fire of what started on page three of the Bible. Our ability to um, mess up ourselves just got amplified. It got horribly amplified in this way. And so um, we have, and, and now we can make sense of it. Like I said, we didn't have any of this stuff until after 2010. This is like recent discoveries that help us better understand what was the ancient Israelite thinking when he wrote this line, you know, where he says, uh, the Lord saw, after the watchers come, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart, it was only evil, always, all the time. It just, it just got ramped up. And see, we, we, have, um, we have a number of books, like for instance, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, these are all pre-Christian Jewish writings discovered in the 1940s, took sometimes 20, 50 years for much of it to get out. But there are books in there, like there's one book called The Book of the Giants. And it actually mentions um, Gilgamesh by name. You know, the Gilgamesh epic? I mean, it mentions him. It, it, it calls him the, the Lord of the Apkalu, gives his height larger than Goliath. Um, <clears throat> so we, ha- we, we have this idea that Israelites were very familiar with these Mesopotamian stories, and they're, they're reacting to them. They're writing polemics, which is a poke in the eye, <laughs> to the Babylonian culture, to the Mesopotamian culture. Let me give you one other passage that also shows, um, well, it's the same passage, but I just want to let you see this here. Oh, I didn't want to do that. I want to go back to Second uh, Peter. Here we go. Second Peter, when he says... Um, down here. Okay, the, this column right here, this is the Greek below, and you might recognize this word. It says, um, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell. The Greek there, the verb is tartarao, cast them into Tartarus. Anyone ever heard that word before, Tartarus? Are you familiar with the Titans? Have you heard, remember the old Greek stories? Peter is dipping into secular Greek language here, the secular Greek story of when the gods to condemning the Titans threw them into Tartarus and imprisoned them there forever. The same story is in Greek. And Peter is dipping into that saying, God threw them into Tartarus. He's using the Greek secular word instead of Hades. For hell. He's connecting, he has this story in mind as he's thinking about it. He casts them into Tartarus. <clears throat> what happened in Genesis 6 is amplifying human destruction. I, uh, I was talking to a friend of mine last week after Wednesday night, and you know, we were, or maybe it was two weeks ago, and uh, it wouldn't have been two weeks ago, we weren't here two weeks ago, three weeks ago, I don't know when it was, but we were talking about where do you see this or, or, or when you think of humanity's tendency to self-destruct, what do you think of? And he sent me an email. I just want to read you just some of, 
some of these, and you might, you might think of some other ones, but as, as he was thinking, he said, it's, it's this idea that we're just going to, we're going to define truth and everything. So we're going to redefine, let's say, what does marriage mean? You know that thing that happens on page one and two? I'm going to give a whole, whole new idea of what it means, family. I'm going to determine even my own gender. Um, what about prolific divorce? What about fatherless families? Sex outside of marriage, sexually transmitted diseases, unwanted pregnancies, abortion, its impact on women and the unborn, sex trafficking, pornography, its destruction on both men and women, addictions, substance abuse. I mean, he went on and on. And I thought to myself, as I'm reading this, I'm just thinking, all of these things are self-destructive, aren't they? That we have this tendency, left unchecked, left untransformed, to lean into, as humans, a path of self-obliteration. How many times do you hear people talk about, you know what the greatest problems on earth is right now? Overpopulation. Too many immatures. Too many immatures of God. That's the problem. I mean, I've, I've heard people talk about this. Humans are, are like cockroaches on the earth. These are humans saying this about us, about humans. There is a tendency in the human heart, and that's what the author is getting at here, to be absolutely self-destructive, which is frightening, isn't it? But that's in us. It's in us to lean into self-destruction. And again, that's what we're getting at. And so this is so great. Verse 5, the human heart, you know, it's, let's just put it up there again because the author says it. So the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So he, he sends a flood. Does that fix it? First thing that Noah does, he gets hammered, right? His son has sex with his mother, has a child to be a rival lineage to Noah. I mean, it's, it's so broken. And yet God sticks with the program. He says, I'm, I'm not going to just scrap it. I am going to fix it. It's interesting. Um, there's a uh, Romans chapter 5. When Paul speaks of Genesis 3, that first rebellion, he always speaks of it as a transgression, singular. Okay? Like this passage right here. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, <clears throat> even over those sinning, uh, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Okay? It's interesting, when Paul, in another place, speaks about the giving of the law, why did the law come? He says this, why then the law? It was added because of, and he doesn't use the singular, so he's not just thinking of Adam, because of transgressions until the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. That's Jesus, right? He gave, why was the law added? Now, I can't prove this. This is my pet theory, that I think what Paul is saying here is because of not just page three, but because of page six, because of not just the transgression of Adam, but because of another transgression. The law, what does the law do? It restricts things from getting too bad. (laughs) That God added the law 
because there was another transgression. What might that be? I think it's Genesis 6, and that's what he has in mind here. Um, The law was added to restrain evil, we read in Galatians uh, 3, 19. Um, There's something here that that I think is really interesting. Let me kind of read some of these words for you. Um, This is one author's commentary. He, uh, He said this, um, well, we've said a few times in this series, the, the ancient Israelite expected whenever the Messiah came, he's got to not just fix what happened in the garden. He's got to fix what happened in the garden. He's got to fix what happened with the transgression of heaven to earth in the sons of God, the watchers. And he's got to fix the nations which are uh, disinherited, Genesis 11, right? <clears throat> now, this is an interesting connection. He says this, if you think about what happened, the sons of God go into the women, give birth to illegitimate children, and those children die as spirits, they go into humans to destroy and mess up and bring chaos, right? And he says this, he says, Jesus' coming was the great reversal of that. If you think about it. It's, it's, it's the contrary to that. Um, he says both texts bring heaven and earth together, right? It's a crossing over, heaven coming to earth, each one with a divine son coming out of a woman in some way. Um, after the initial judgment of the flood, the disembodied spirits in their, are in their, um, of their illegitimate sons enter into humans, attacking them, causing disease, blindness, destruction, um, Jesus is coming. What does he do when he goes around to people who are diseased, blind, deaf? Yeah. Oh. He's reversing the things that those things often have caused in the past. He's signaling to them. That's why when he comes over to the demon-possessed person and they go, you shouldn't be doing this. It's not time yet. You can't reverse our stuff. And he's reversing what he's been doing. Listen to these words here. Oh, and then opposite of sending spirits into them and you know, possessing them, he says, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit into you, and it's going to own you, but it's not going to exploit you. <laughs> it's not going to bring chaos. It's going to be a helper. It's, it's, so it's this great reversal. And he writes this, reversing cosmic upheaval, because that's what happened in Genesis 6. Reversing cosmic upheaval required something greater than the law. See, the law is like trying to hold in evil. (laughs) It it can't do it, though. It required a Messiah whose atoning death would ripple through the cosmos, healing the entire creation. The birth, death, and resurrection of the Son of God reconciles all things, whether on earth or in heaven, as Colossians 1.19 says, and holds the entire creation together, Colossians 1.16. It's interesting that um, John the Baptist, when he's put in prison, you remember this? And he kind of starts doubting. He's like, man, if Jesus was really the Messiah, it seems like I wouldn't be here. <laughs> Something's not <clears throat> right. And so it says that he actually sent some of his disciples to go find Jesus and be like, are you the guy? I mean, just be, be blunt with me. Be straight. Are you the guy? Are you the Messiah? And listen to Jesus' response. 
He said, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the good news preached to them. He's saying, you know, all those things that those demons, the disembodied spirits of the Nephilim, all the, all the havoc that they have wrought on humanity, I'm reversing it. So what do you think, John? Because <laughs> John knew he's got to fix Genesis 3, he's got to fix Genesis 6, and he's got to fix Genesis 11. And he just said, what's happening to that Genesis 6 thing? How's that going? Yeah, I am the guy without saying it. And then again, as he promised, he said, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The law doesn't work to fix what's inside you. Okay? This is what will fix. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. That's getting to the Genesis 11 problem. We're going to reinherit the nations. But the Spirit is going to come and it's going to give you power. He also says this, And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be with you. That's what the law couldn't do. It's going to be inside you, changing your life. Likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness. Gosh, are we weak? Are we broken? Do we lean towards self-destruction? <laughs> he goes, yeah. And the law restrains that. It can't fix it, though. The Spirit can actually come in and restore. Or in Jesus' language to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Because this first one you had, it's not working. <laughs> you must be born again. And finally, these words. But Galatians uh, chapter 4, verse 6, he says, And because you are sons... Now, think of, think of the family language. Who's called the sons of God in the Old Testament? Yeah, the watchers. He says, you're my sons. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, and this is a key idea that we'll get to in a couple weeks, you're an heir Heir to what? To ruling the nations, to ruling the world. He's actually going to displace, and we'll, we'll get to this in a couple of weeks, he's going to displace the rebellious divine council with his human family. Wow. That gives a pretty different picture than that fat little angel, baby angel sitting on a cloud, doesn't it? That's a very, very different picture. We're going to move into a time of communion, as we do each week, and I want us to take it as a reminder and reminding each other of your adoption. Now, I'm going to use a phrase, and I don't mean it sexist, ladies, but I'm using it as this phrase from the Old Testament, as sons of God, divine council members. <clears throat> We're reminding each other, each time we take this, this is what provides our adoption as to that level of I'm a son of God, daughter of God as well, but I'm just using this biblical language here. And so every time we take it, we're reminding ourselves and we're reminding each other we are part of that. 
we're part of God's family. Amen? So during this song, um, gluten-free elements on the far back wall, if you need them. Otherwise, there are a couple stations around the room. Take an element, the bread representing Christ's body, broken for us, the cup representing his shed blood. Take it in your own time, and after you've taken it, would you stand and let's worship? As a, as a benediction, I want to read the words of the Apostle Paul to Timothy and have these words go out to you from Paul. He says, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in King Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. He encourages them. He says, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. That's our charge this week. Guard the good deposit that's entrusted to you by the power of the Spirit. Amen? Love being with you guys. As always, thanks for being here. Thanks for your diligence. So, so good to be with you. And hope to see you next Wednesday.